This is Vandana Shiva and you're listening to the Enviro show on Valley Free Radio WXOJLP 103.3 FM Northampton streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org Remember listen to your mother The Enviro show thanks River Valley Co-op Northampton's locally grown food co-op located at 330 North King Street and at 228 Northampton Street in East Hampton. The co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods from produce and cheese to fresh meats and locally baked goods. Everyone is welcome. Open 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily. Enviro Show thanks River Valley Co-op for their support. I spent a lot of time in these woods as a kid, but somewhere along the line, I forgot what was really important to me. Hi. Are you feeling tired, irritable, or stressed out? Well, you might consider nature. Are you suffering from an existential crisis? Prescription Strength Nature may help you. Clinical studies have shown that nature can save you from your neutered existence. Being in nature can remind you that you have a body and that you're not the center of the universe. If you care more about selfies than preserving the natural beauty and wonder of the environment, you may need to increase your dose of nature. Nature's been shown to decrease thoughts of worthlessness and increase libido. Tell your doctor if you are struggling with hygiene. You may need to decrease your dose of nature. If you're obsessing about outdoor gear or find yourself co-opting an indigenous culture, you may be taking yourself too seriously. Side effects may include getting off your ass. A genuine care for yourself, other people, and the world we live in. Being more pleasant to be around. Confidence, authenticity, and honesty. I know you're busy, but don't fool yourself. You need nature. Now, literally from across the valley and around the world, it's the Enviro Show. WXOJLP 103.3 FM, Valley Free Radio, Northampton. Greetings, Earthlings. It's the 2023 Winter Solstice Enviro Show. I am one of your co-hosts, Dio, and we once again are not in the studio with... Happy Solstice. This is Glenn Ayers. Yes, Glenn. And as we approach December 21, it's a good time to focus on Mother Earth and the turning of the seasons. If we don't honor her and act with respect towards nature, we and all of life on the planet will suffer greatly. 
Laura Wildman Hanlon returns to the show, the house witch, the new house witch, to help us along the path. Also, we talk with scuba diver Annette Spaulding about her experiences in the Connecticut River, in particular, her run-ins with First Light's pump storage monster. As always, we also invite you to meet this week's Fool on the Hill and those whose brains are small, as well as an ongoing reminder that it's the climate crisis, stupid, and more. But first, it's time for... Revenge of the Critters. It's another listener's suggestion. They're called wildlife for a reason, folks. Kingman, Arizona, an Arizona woman has died a week after being critically injured in what is believed to be the first deadly elk attack in the state. Wildlife officials said Tuesday, the woman's husband found her in the backyard of their house in Pine Lake, a community 15 miles southeast of Kingman. On the afternoon of October 26, game and fish investigators said the woman, whose name was not released, had injuries consistent with being trampled by an elk. They also noticed a bucket of spilled corn and several elk tracks in the couple's yard. Wildlife officials say there have been five reported elk attacks in Arizona in the past five years. Since the woman's attack, a game and fish officer has gone door to door in her community to issue flyers warning against approaching or feeding elk. Revenge of the critters, Glenn. Yeah, those elk are big. They are they are big animals. They are really big. How about Fool on the Hill? And nobody seems to like him. The fool on the hill. Well, back for another Fool on the Hill drubbing is Republican Senator Ron Johnson, the gift that keeps on giving. This time during an interview with Faux News, Johnson was bad-mouthing Dems with the usual baseless alternative facts, stating, quote, gasoline is higher because of their war on fossil fuel and their climate change policies, which are a fantasy Close quote. Of course, grass prices are falling, but, you know. As for fantasies, the MAGA death cult seems to have the lock on that one. And Ron John, he's all in. Yep. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. I know. I know. We just have to bear it, I guess, until we get all those fascists out of there. How about the climate crisis? Well, Enviro Show listeners know it's the climate crisis, stupid, and we've a feeling they may be screaming at their screens as reports are coming in from COP 281. Oh, wait, what is it? I'm sorry, COP 28. Kind of losing track here. So many cops, so little done. We reported months ago on oil operative Sultan Al Jaber 
of the UAE becoming the president of this particular COP meeting. There was a failed effort to have him removed, but we guess Big Oil and a bunch of corporatos had the final word. With that in mind, let's rub their faces in Al Jabbar's little hissy fit last week when he claimed there's no science indicating that a phase out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict global heating to 1.5 centigrade. Al Jabbar also said a phase out of fossil fuels would not allow sustainable development unless you want to take the world back to the caves. That's a quote. Does that sound familiar? It does. Yeah. I don't know where I've heard that before. Well, while we're at it, Glenn, uh, let's keep an eye on the new buzzwords <laughs> like unabated fossil fuels. Hey, go to the blog, click on that link. Virus show without the w.blogspot.com. Unabated fossil fuels, emissions that are not captured through technological fixes like carbon capture and storage before they reach the atmosphere. Analysts warn the technology would actually increase energy consumption by 20%, ultimately increasing the carbon emissions that CCS proponents claim are abated by the technology. And there's another goodie from COP, what is it, 28? Uh, yeah, who who knows what number it is. The uh, great thing about carbon capture and storage is that right now the technology requires way more energy than you get from burning the fuels to begin with. And this, I mean, I think they're being conservative here by saying it requires 20% more energy than is produced in order to capture that carbon dioxide. I've uh, heard that it's roughly the existing functioning systems take about twice as much energy to recover the CO2 than they generate when burning the fuel. So that actually increases dramatically when you do what's called direct air capture of CO2, because that process is unrelated to generation of electricity. Essentially, it requires 100% energy to directly remove it from the air. It's not above the amount that's being generated because it's just taking it out of the ambient air. So the whole thing is, a, as we've talked about before, a complete scam. And the fact that these projections of climate change are totally dependent upon implementing carbon capture and storage on a massive scale. It's unbelievable. That's where we've gotten to now. The only possible way to stay below two degrees C is to implement fantasy carbon capture and storage devices that actually consume way, way more energy than the carbon embodied energy that they're burning to capture that carbon. It makes no sense. And that's why it's a complete scam. Yep. Another giant step backwards for technology. But there are a few positive agreements that have been reported. But given the players showing up, it's starting to look like yet another dog and pony show for business as usual. 
And so again, go to the blog, click on the link to learn about the few positive agreements. Ah, okay, this is all happening when new research shows that carbon dioxide becomes a stronger greenhouse gas as its levels rise, highlighting the critical need for immediate emissions reduction. So I got a bunch of links on the blog there, and Barbershow listeners can go there, the Barbershow, without the W, .blogspot.com. How about we see if we're a Biden with Biden? It's been a while. Oh, boy. Checked in, right? Wanted man in Sacramento, wanted man in Old Cheyenne. Wherever you may look tonight, you may see this wanted man. Well, sadly, it's hard to be a Biden with Biden when he hasn't even made a showing at COP28, <laughs> what that's worth. He sent VP Harris, but given the climate emergency is the greatest threat to life on Mother Earth, second best, well, maybe not such a good idea. Add to that, an EU memo suggests the Biden administration is angering allies by undermining strict standards for new global carbon market. Of course, carbon markets are sketchy anyway. The president is even trying to undermine that. Maybe as damage control, the administration announced at COP, I guess via VP Harris, that the U.S. government would, for the first time, require oil and gas producers to detect and fix leaks of methane. Well, we certainly applaud that, something that should have been done decades ago. But oil and gas production continues to increase here at home as we find ourselves backsliding with Biden. And the New York Times reports, quote, five days into the two-week conference, I guess by the time you hear this, it'll be seven or eight days, known as COP28, the talks have become consumed by an intense debate over the future of fossil fuels. And Reuters notes, world's largest iceberg breaks free and heads toward the Southern Ocean. It's as large as the UK, from what I've heard. Surprise. Happy solstice. Happy solstice, everyone. Let's see if their brains were small. They were big, dumb, and slow. They couldn't go with the flow. Their brains were small and they died. Well, this episode of Their Brains Were Small and They Died is focused on India's exporting its toxic legacy to Africa. Well, Gris tells us, quote, while India introduced its first lead, <laughs> five, four, three, two, one. So Gris tells us, quote, while India introduced its first lead battery rules requiring recycling companies to adopt safe practices in its own country more than 20 years ago, the Republic of Congo, like other countries in Africa, has not done the same. Now, officials in New Delhi are celebrating the charge of Indian operations into Africa, which include battery recycling facilities in at least eight countries. India recently dispatched one of its ambassadors in West Africa to inaugurate a plant that has been stockpiling lead batteries. Indian investments in Africa have grown by more than $20 billion in four years, officials say, 
and government funding for projects across the continent are on the rise. Quote, the sky is the limit, close quotes, as far-right Prime Minister Modi in August as Africans absorb Indians toxins if their brains are small. And of course, the Africans end up dying. There's that. So meanwhile, over in the Environmental Echo Chamber, Echo Chamber, the New York Times is telling us those avocados so many of us love are killing Mexicans' forests. Go to the blog, click on that link. The market has become so lucrative that gangs are burning down high-altitude forests so they can plant avocado trees. Violence and deaths are being reported as well. Also this. PETA informs us they obtained documents showing that a marmoset monkey confined at the University of Massachusetts Amherst escaped and injured another caged, stressed-out monkey. The monkey was imprisoned in the laboratory of experimenter Agnes LeCrew, who studies menopause using marmosets, even though the marmosets don't experience menopause. Go figure. So yes, the torture continues at UMass Amherst. Oh, and this from Grist, just in time for the holidays. Discarded toys are creating an e-waste disaster. Merry Christmas. Go to the blog, click on the link. Oh, how about a quote of the week, Len? What do you think? Here's our Enviro Show Winter Solstice Quote of the Week. Quote, this is the solstice, the still point of the sun, its cusp and midnight, the year's threshold and unlocking, where the past lets go and becomes the future. Close quote. And that was Margaret Atwood. She's a novelist. If you're not familiar with her, look her up. Yeah. Meanwhile. That's a good quote for the season, though. Truly. Okay, Glenn, I think it's time to to get a get, go and get a little solstice spirit here. And Laura Wildman Hanlon, the house witch of the Enviro Show, returns, and she's going to tell Enviro Show listeners about you know the history of the winter solstice in terms of oh pagan belief systems, and uh, also down into present time when people are rediscovering what these special times of the year mean. So, Laura, welcome back to the show. And please tell the folks, what's what's this all about? What is the winter solstice about? Well, the winter solstice is the shortest day of the year, and it marks the end of going into those long, longer nights and the beginning of the return of the light and when the days are going to start to stretch out longer. It's that time, that pivotal moment when things come to a stop and then start to back up again. So Yule is a celebration of light. It's a celebration of life. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of that cold, dark period where you wanted to sort of stay warm and in the house and reflect upon your own individual life and maybe your spirituality and allowing that to expand as the light expands. So, of course, Yule is, is pre-Christian. The winter solstice is one of those 
points within the year where we can actually mark it how long the sun has been up in the sky and then mark as the days increase, just as our ancestors did. So it was a really, really important point for our agricultural ancestors who needed to know that, yes, indeed, the light was going to come back. And yes, indeed, they're going to be able to maybe find more food and survive again. So it's historically, it's really important. And of course, for those of us who are now modern day pagans or Wiccans or witches or whatever you want to call us, it's one of our major holidays. And it's a period where we usually look at it as connecting with the earth and connecting with the cycles and connecting with the hope and the promise that's found within the solstice that even when it gets this dark and this cold, the sun is going to come back and we are going to be warm again and we'll be able to plant and go outside and enjoy nature. So it's one of my favorite holidays. (laughs) Being somebody who is a summer solstice baby, I love the winter solstice. I do too, and I'm sure Glenn does as well. You know, last time you were on, we spoke about how back in the, in ancient times, people were, you know, self-sustaining. They had to grow their own food and grow, make their own clothing and tend their own stock and so forth. Something that we've, in these times, have more or less, most of us have, have lost touch with that. So I think that they had a much deeper understanding of these things than we do. What do you, what do you think? Oh, yeah. Like I said, it, it was a critical point in the year. You know, they would be looking and hoping and preparing that the sun is indeed going to be coming back. I mean, that was critical to life. You needed to have that sunlight returning. So, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why people would come together and bonfires, you know, they, you hear about bonfires being lit and this being something that's happened for as long as, as we can remember. It's that calling back the sun of, of bringing back all that warmth and joy and energy that the sun is. We need that. And so I think our ancestors, this time was really, really critical that that was going to indeed happen. And look at all of our holiday traditions now. They all center around fire and warmth and light and the return of the light. Because I think all of us, it doesn't matter what religion we're coming from. It seems that all faiths have something at this time of year that is that hope and that wish and the prayer that the light will return kind of joins us all together. Right. And I'll just point out a few things in in our modern society that emphasize that concept. And that is, you know, people decorating their homes with lights, putting lights on Christmas trees, or, you know, the Hanukkah tradition of lighting a a lamp every night, uh, you know, over a period of time as the light returns. And, you know, the old saying that the oil never fails, and that is because, you know, the sun never fails to return or the light never fails to return. And so all of these things are totally embedded in our society. We may not understand their connection to, you know, this underlying uh, tradition, but they're all still present with us. They've been Mm -hmm. adopted or modified in, in various 
ways in different cultures, but they're all there and we're all celebrating the same concept of light, the return of light. And, right. you know, that's that's what it's all about. That yeah. is what it's all about. And uh, Laura, are there any events this year at Solstice? Oh, there are a lot of events out there, but my little group, which is New Moon in the Valley, we are going to be hosting a winter solstice celebration on the 23rd. So that's just right after the solstice, but still within that period where the sun is sort of stopping and is about to come back. It's going to be at the Munson Library in South Amherst, and we're asking people to be there by 4.30. Again, in that whole concept of we are here supporting and nurturing each other. We are collecting donations for the Amherst Survival Center of non-perishable food items. We're asking also if you could bring some sort of slippers or shoes or something to wear inside because it's a beautiful wood floor and we don't want to destroy it. But we're going to have a, a just a acknowledgement of the season and a touching into that hope within our hearts of the returning light and the returning sun and something that's going to hold us during the next month or so as we wait to be able to see that light come back and just a celebration of community. So I hope people, if they're available, will come and join us. It's the 23rd, 4.30 at the Munson Library in Amherst. Excellent. Uh, Excellent, yeah. So I'll just say happy solstice to you, Laura, and we'll look forward to talking with you yeah, maybe on the spring equinox. Yeah. That sounds good. Wonderful. Well, blessings Thank of you. the season to you. Bye-bye you now. Bye. Bye-bye. Before we do the interview, I think we should just have some good news to report. Don't you think? Isn't there anything? Well, I read a story this past week about a young, I think, 14-year-old Girl Scout All right. who saved a forest that was owned by the Girl Scout Corporation, I think it was like 650 acres or something like that, that they were going to turn into a housing development. And this one young woman organized opposition to that and eventually got the board of directors of the Girl Scout Corporation to agree to put that land into a state park, into permanent protection. That's an an example of activism right? This was a young person who had never done anything like this before. But she took all of the stuff that she had been taught about loving nature as a Girl Scout, and she put it into action. And she confronted the the board of the Girl Scouts Corporation and told them that they needed to practice what they preached. And it turned out that it became essentially a movement. And that movement resulted in the protection of that forest, it will not be turned into a housing development. It will remain a protected area, part of a state park. And I think that, you know, that's an example of how it may seem like it's all doom and gloom, but individual acts and groups of people can get together and can accomplish, you know, really important and incredible things. As long as you don't give up, as long as you stay active and do what you can. You know, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a scientist. All you have to be is motivated and someone who's willing to put your beliefs into practice. And so I, I want to call out, you know, that amazing young woman who did that. That will be something that stays with her for the rest of her life. 
and also inspires many other people to become activists to protect the earth. So, you know, on this show, we often talk about doom and gloom, but there's occasionally amazing things that happen. And that's an example of how activism can really be important to protecting the earth and life. You know, I only read the headline, so I'm glad that you got into to the whole article. But I wonder if she had a, like a squad or, or a, an army of Girl Scouts behind her and the scout leaders saw a rebellion at hand. She organized. Yes. Yeah, I mean, she she had never done anything like this before. And she organized and did sign ons, got thousands of people to back her. And they changed. They changed the direction of that plan to turn that land into a housing development. And, you know, that's amazing. So, yeah, let's go into the interview with Annette Spaulding, who is an incredible, really, activist. She's a a river diver, and she's part of a diving rescue team. But she also spends all of her time, essentially— diving in the river or in water, looking for archaeological evidence, and also looking at, well, she'll talk about the amazing improvements that have happened in the Connecticut River over the last 30 years, which she has experienced from being in the water herself. And we also talk about you know, the travesty of the relicensing of the Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Fish Grinder And she has some things to say about that as well. But, you know, keep in mind that there has been literally billions of dollars spent on trying to clean up the Connecticut River, restore the native fish to that uh, river ecosystem. And yet we still have these same entities wanting to use the river as a sewer to grind up fish suck fish out of the the river, reverse the flow of the river, and then grind up all those fish and spew them out, just like you would be spewing into a, a, you know, a sewer or a wastewater treatment plant, except you're spewing it into a natural living ecosystem. And so we'll talk with her about that. And she'll, she has some amazing things to say about the river. And then we'll be back. So today on the Enviro Show, we are joined by Annette Spaulding, and Annette is a diver, a river diver, I'm sure all kinds of water that you love, but specifically, we want to talk to you, Annette, today about your experience in the Connecticut River and uh, the archaeological work that you have done in the river, and really tell us about you a little bit about your background, about what you do, and then tell us about the river and and why people should care about protecting the Connecticut River that runs through this part of Massachusetts and is really a major feature in the landscape here in, of course, the Connecticut River Valley. So, Annette, welcome to the Enviro Show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to talk to you about it because it's one of my favorite things in the world to do. So I'm a master scuba diver. I've been diving since I've been 12 years old, certified. I have a very large amount of different certifications in underwater, various underwater, swift water, um, rescue under the ice, etc. But what really 
got me excited is I've been on the underwater rescue team for over 35 years now in the Connecticut River area. And we covered down, you know, as far down as Northfield, Mass, and um, on the New Hampshire and Vermont side. And unfortunately, over the years, 35 years ago, the visibility was horrible. It was so, it was still polluted. Um, There was not it was just the beginning of strong environmental protection for the river. So when I was diving looking for a missing person, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but cold water revival, this is an amazing technique where people, if they are, you know, say they fell out of a kayak and they should have had their life jacket on and they didn't, or they did and they got hit in the head, et cetera. What happens is a child in cold, clean water can be revived sometimes up to an hour and a half later and years ago people just thought automatically that the person was deceased what happens with an adult same thing cold clean water they can be revived up to an hour so this is extremely important because when the water is polluted very polluted then we don't have that nice clean water. So over the years of diving, and it takes so long, of course, if you have three inch visibility like I had 35 years ago, the longer it takes to find the missing person, then you're losing time on that golden hour, that very important cold water revival technique that could bring them back and save their life. So over the years seeing this and being so dedicated to that underwater rescue team, you care about the quality of the water and you want it to be clean. You want it to be successful. So what happened was back then, every time we were diving, I was noticing what for what you could see, there were dead fish. There was a lot of um, fungus type of things growing on the fish. There was um, the, the types of vegetation didn't look great. And it was just very polluted. And when I came out from diving, my wetsuit almost was like, a, it was like a hazmat dive. I actually had to clean my wetsuit in special types of cleaners. And sometimes a few times where I was diving, it was so bad that I didn't use my wetsuit again. So, and sometimes back then I would even get like rashes around where my wrists would, uh, my neck where my hood would go on to my wrist, anything that was exposed to the water that was not covered by my wetsuit. So lo and behold, I really cared. And I heard about this organization um, called the Connecticut River Conservancy because I was diving and found propane tanks underwater and I wanted them out of the river. They didn't belong there. And so it was from a storm or something back then. So I called so many agencies, government agencies, to tell them I found, you know, I called federal agencies, state agencies, to tell them I found these propane tanks that still had propane tank, um, propane in them at the bottom of some of these 30-foot holes I was in, et cetera. There might have been five or six of these. But the thing is, I told them when I called, I can get lift bags. I can bring them up to the shore. But I need somebody at the shore to, to properly remove them. And I do not. I'm not involved in that part. I don't know anything about proper removal of them. Well, I was so excited because I read this article in the newspaper. Um, It was all about, I noticed that once a week, there was a great article written about the Connecticut River. And the man that wrote its name was David Dean. And he had a contact information on on the bottom for him. And so I called him and I said, I've never, I've read your beautiful articles, but I have to tell you my dilemma. I've called all these agencies. I cannot get anyone to take these tanks out of the water. And he said, 
where are you? And I told him, you know, in the Connecticut River. It was near Putney at the time. And I found some in Greenfield, too. But anyway, he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll call you right back. And he did. He called me right back. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon at 2.45? I said, I'll be diving if you need me to. So the next day, talk about action. This man actually arranged it. And the Connecticut River um, Conservancy came with the proper people. And I and my two diving buddies brought them up in lift bags and brought them to the shore. And they properly removed them. I was totally impressed. Action. Action. People. I can't say enough about any organization. Everyone has an organization near them to protect the river, the streams. There's so many incredible organizations. You just have to do a little query or you could call the Connecticut River Conservancy, CRC. Um, Their main office is in Greenfield, Mass. And you can tell them where you live and that you want to get involved and they can lead you to the direction right to people that can help you. Um, you can join to help. And there's so many great ways to do that, advocacy ways. And some of them are this. Over these years of doing this, I've seen this amazing change in the river. And Other than, of course, Hurricane Irene and this flood we just had July 10th of this year, which was devastating, which I, in my opinion, I saw more damage than Hurricane Irene. After seeing this river reverse, the health of it reverse, I am so excited to say, with all the strong advocacy of all the organizations, CRC, Connecticut River Conservancy, along with all the wonderful organizations up and down the Connecticut River, all 410 miles of it, anyone can get involved. So what I was doing... um, there's various fishermen groups. Oh my God, they're so great. There's one man, um, Dennis Thompson in Bellows Falls. He has his own website. He is very, very much incredible um, advocate for the river. And he's always posting to different fishermen, you know, talking about different things they have. He, he arranges um, milfoil or water chestnut um, removal. Anyone can help. That's really important. Um, kayaks, kayakers, Anyone on the river, whether you are a fisherman, um, a kayaker, a canoer, uh, a boater, a you know, bird watcher, anyone, or you live on the Connecticut River, we can all, all of us, it makes a difference. It really does. Look what happened to the river. It went from total devastation to total reversal, other than what we just went through and trying to clean up from the disaster of the floods. But overall, this river is so exciting. And so what I've been doing is getting in touch with fishermen and then they talk to other fishermen and, you know, do, um, you know, try to educate everyone how important it is. Like if you are on the shoreline fishing and you bring your crawlers, you know, night crawlers or whatever, in your little containers, those styrofoam things and plastic things, well, um, the wind blows them away. They end up in the river. I see a lot of them underwater, but not as many anymore because fishermen have become such advocates they love the waters they want their fish to be healthy they want the environment for them to be healthy so that they can eat the fish right so um they're doing their part major and another thing when i see these boaters out there these fishermen they pick up rubbish and they pick up anything they see floating and then they bring it in i'm so proud i love our fishermen i'm learning so much about them too they fishermen Annette, deal here. During your experience with diving in the river, have you spent much time around the the area where the Mount 
Jesus, I can't believe it. Oh, you mean in Northfield? Yes, where yes. the, the, yes. the pump storage uh, infall, yes. outfall is. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, let's go in that direction. I have a lot to say about that. I have a lot to say about what's happening anywhere from, you know, Bellows Falls down. This is very disturbing. Um, and this is where the boaters and the fishermen have really helped. It is really important that everyone take note of this. And both of these areas are up for relicensing, both north of the um, Vernon Dam and also down in Northfield. This rapid release of water, they hold it back really a long time, bring it so low, and then they release it so fast. What that's doing is massive erosion. I have seen it. 35 years I've been diving all up and down from Northampton, Mass, all the way up where I am very regularly, and I am seeing this. This erosion is worse than the hurricanes, for God's sakes. It's like every time they do it, it's like a little hurricane. So this has to be taken care of. Not just for that, I've observed something very important. We have... When they do this, they when they're holding it back, bass when bass they they have their nests in shallow water that they have their eggs on shallow water. But recently, because the water visibility has cleaned up so much, I'm seeing sturgeon. Sturgeon. They were native to our river, and that is very important. They need not to have hold back and rapid release like that. Their little eggs that they have, they lay it in in the gravel in between. Unlike bass. Those eggs, they get totally disturbed when that rapid amount comes. They just come out of the little stones of gravel and bounce down the river, and they're totally ruined. I have a 1998 sturgeon report study, and I've been working with um, Micah Kiefer down in um, Massachusetts, who is a biologist. And what's very, very important about the sturgeon is that they're federally protected in their laws, the federal laws, it states that they, if they are interrupting these endangered species, species, they have to stop and they have to have the water flow that is the correct water flow. They can't have water coming out and going backwards up one way, and it's it's not it's so unnatural and it doesn't it's just terrible. And they use so much energy just to make the energy that they're making it's it's just um i'm very disturbed by it because i i see it myself the erosion and control what and then when they do that release like that really fast the water comes up so fast and so unnaturally sometimes it comes up really just like a, a storm and anyone that has boats on the you know shoreline or maybe some of their you know lawnmowers or different things like that it takes them off it just grabs them and takes them away in then it litters the river. Oh my God, it's terrible. Not only that, educating, you know, all these years, farmers and they've been so good about having these buffers without having their chemicals for their production of crops not near the top, you know, close to the river, golf courses, house homeowners, you know, with one of the meticulous looking lawns. This is bad when they do this quick release and the rub, it comes up so fast. It actually is making more of that coming into the water. And I am really upset about it. I've been really observing this now. And, it, you know, the weird thing about it is it seems to me, and if I went back and looked at my logbooks, because I keep pretty good logs in this, if I look back in those logbooks, 
they didn't used to hold it back like that so intensely. There was a different trickle, not trickle, but there was a different flow of water so that it wasn't, you know, as drastic as it is. They make more electricity. They make more money by doing the rapid, you know, hold back and rapid release. You know, we can't have that. This river is for recreational use. You leave the you leave in your kayak or your boating slip from the Brattleboro Marina or Norm's Marina or any of the marinas down in Northampton and Holyoke. And what happens? You come back, you leave with high water, you come back and it's so the water's gone. You can't even get into your slip. You're stuck out in the water because they pull they've started holding it back. Or the other way around when they release it so fast. I mean it's so this has to stop. And I know I'm spending a lot of time on this and I really want to talk about so many other things. But right now, that is one of our major problems. We've worked so hard to reverse this river, um, the, the health. It's not good. It's going to destroy. It, it also spreads um, Japanese knotweed, okay, with that rapid, you know, in this, it, it, it's just not good. And that is my biggest thing right now. After all this education to fishermen and kayakers and boaters and having everyone work together hard and you know all the streams and tributaries that get go into the river you know unfortunately after hurricane irene and the flood these tributaries became shallow they got wider and you know there was more um that had to be done we uh, we're trying to educate people to plant more trees for erosion control and buffers and also the health of the trout and the fish to have their shade back but all these things that we do and it's done they've all done so well and it that's why it's reversed like this but what's destroying it right now the dam making money these unbelievably terrible all this work we've done we cannot let you know we all have electricity we all have to use electricity we need it but it has to be a medium road it has to be a middle of the road situation we want a healthy river. We all look at, admire, use, live near, cross over. It brings so much beautiful love of nature to our communities and lots and lots of money with people coming from out of state and where they don't have such beautiful water and clean water. And they come here to kayak and they come here to stay for a week and camp or whatever. And they spend a lot of money in our communities. What are we going to do if, um, you know, this keeps happening and it just looks terrible and it's unpredictable? You know, I fought really hard, really hard back when they wanted to put a landfill up in Rockingham, Vermont, right on the river. And they were right next, they were ready to do it. And I found evidence that showed, you know, it was very important, a geological report. And this is important for everyone, every state right now. I found a geological report with the state of Vermont that showed the type of soil along the river and what was unstable. And that, that one thing I found that I brought up at this town meeting, just as they were gonna get permission to do this, we fought hard. It ended it. It ended it because it said it was unstable. Every state should, everyone concerned, get the geological reports to your state and also along the shoreline. And it'll tell you, you know, soil's okay for this, soil's okay for that, unstable for this or that. And that is so important because all those unstable areas, they are being affected by this sudden release. And the reverse water going in reverse direction in Northfield, Oh my God, that's it's gonna stop. It's horrible. You just see what it looks like underwater. It's dangerous. Um, I when I'm down there diving, 
and all of a sudden they open that up. I've lost at least six pair of fins. The force was so high. Even though I'm a certified swiftwater diver and rescue diver, you can't, it would be impossible to rescue a person. I've lost a number of masks. If you don't hold onto your mask, if you turn your head sideways, your mask is gone. Um, that's how dramatic it is. I have to hold on to rocks and anything I can to just try to get back over to crawl underwater back to the shoreline when this happens. It's very dangerous. It's very unpredictable. And I don't like it. And I want, after all this work of all, not not just about my, myself, but all the lovers of the river that have helped. And really, all, all of you can be so involved. It's so important. There's so many things out there. Just go online or call the Connecticut River Conservancy and say, I want to be a volunteer. How can I help? We have people that collect water samples. We have people that um, will do uh, counts of, you know, um, different species. There's just so many things you can do to protect our river. Everyone can help. Even if you were disabled and you can't walk along the river, there's so many ways you can help. And everyone should get involved and maybe together as a group, the things that we're seeing that aren't natural, this rapid release, especially, we need to put pressure on these people. They're in the middle of relicensing, and that license is a long time, at least 40 years. Can you imagine we're stuck for 40 years of rapid release and, and all this erosion? We have to take action. We all have to, and we can, all of us can. We just have to write to our, um, our representatives, get involved. The CRC has um, river stewards for Connecticut, Massachusetts, you can find out who they are, let them know what you're seeing. But we need your voice. You might not think it makes a difference. It does make a difference. We are going to be the ones to change what they have to do. And, you know, again, I know they have to make money, They, but they don't, they're making a lot of money. And we do all need electricity, but there's a middle of the road. And when I read those regulations and federal regulations for protection of the sturgeon, I can't, I wish I could quote them all right off the top of my head. I've got them all right next to me in my documentation and my work. But they're, they are supposed to, they are doing illegal things, totally illegal by the federal regulations that affect sturgeon. And we've got them in our river and we have verification of those sturgeon. And, you know, that's important. So they better maybe review those regulations and um, start coming up with a middle of the road solution without the rapid release. And this reversal down there, this is ridiculous. I, I can't even believe this could happen. I can't even believe it. How can this not be, this is illegal. How could it be not, it's crazy. That, that alone, they, if you read those regulations, all you've got to do, um, I have the publication, it's federal, it's through NOAA and Micah Kiefer, um, who is the biologist he has copies of these you can get these copies of these sturgeon regulations just and you can do research online federal relate um, federal regulations regarding protection of federally endangered sturgeon and it states right in those that this big fines they have to stop doing it I don't think they paid attention to that but maybe before it was so polluted they didn't know that sturgeon was there they are there and we have all the verification. Micah has verification. And we need to protect our river. We all love it. We, we can't let this, all our work to reverse it. We cannot let this issue, an unnatural issue like this, hurt what we work so hard to protect. It brings a lot of money to our community, a lot more money overall for all of our river lovers and you know, all the recreational things. It bring, it's just 
I can't, I just, I get, I get really, I'm so sorry. I'm so frustrated. I can't believe that this can happen. I really can't. I cannot believe that this is going on. We cannot let them get relicensed without this being corrected. No way. We have to put pressure on pressure, lots of pressure, right? Call, call your, you know, representatives, call CRC. Everyone has to come together. This is where we can work together again to help protect our river. There's a big documentary coming out. I have to mention this. Very important. Vince Hogan. It's on the Connecticut River. It's amazing. It's going to be out this spring. He is. I worked with him. He's incredible. Great. Great. Well, Annette, thank you again. Thank you so much. And yeah. keep up the great work. It's uh, it's people like you, you know, putting all the time in and discovering this amazing river system that we you know mostly take for granted here but um it's folks like you who can shine a light on this for for the rest of the people that you know don't have a uh, diving skills or equipment or anything like that so um, thanks thanks for being on the enviro show really appreciate it and i want to thank everyone out there that's doing their part to help too i did not do this alone these wonderful fishermen kayakers boaters bird watchers thank you very much all right great Okay, so that was a great interview, and I'm really glad that we had her on to talk about what goes on under the river. I mean, you know, nobody has any idea unless they happen to be divers or or whatnot that there's life going on under the river. You drive over, you drive next to it, and it's very, you know, beautiful to look at and everything. And you see, maybe you're lucky enough to see an eagle fishing or something, and and but there's a whole bunch of life under the river that's being threatened by the fish grinder. Yeah, I I think that her perspective is really important in this because obviously most people do not spend any appreciable amount of time underwater. You know, she talks a lot about sportsmen or fishermen or fisher people, and they have a close connection to the river as a pastime or an entertainment of you know, fishing for the aquatic beings in the river. But, you know, she's not in there fishing. She's actually diving and observing and chronicling the important changes that have happened in the river over, you know, just the last 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. And part of that recovery now is an opportunity to stop the continued damage that is being done by the Northfield Mountain Pump Storage fish grinder and shut that down now and imagine what the next 50 years will be like for the restoration of the river. It'll be entirely different and much faster and much better if we can stop the ongoing abuse that that machine, which has been operating for 50 years, if we can stop that now and keep it from operating for another 50 years. Look, the only thing that they should be allowed to do is to create somehow, create a lower reservoir if they can if they can find somewhere to to do that, but they should not be allowed to use the natural living river as their dumping ground for their ground up fish guts. And we need to make sure that that does not happen. All right, so it's on to the bus stop billboard, and let me see. Shall I start off here? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks. 
Wednesday, December 13th, 4 p.m., 2023 in bird conservation. What a year it's been for birds, full of highs and lows, exciting victories, like the habitat they help protect for the Bicknell's thrush and galvanizing events like the ongoing battles, you know, like more than a thousand migrating birds dying in the mass collision effect in a building in Chicago. Well, anyway, if you want to learn all about the wide range of conservation programs that uh, the American bird conservation programs have, go to the blog, click on the link for info on that. And Thursday, December 14th at 8 p.m., join Free Speech for People and People Power United for a virtual town hall. It's going to be on Thursday, December 14th, and learn why Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution prevents his malignancy, the previous uh, mad king in the White House, from running and holding public office ever again. So you need to RSVP, and there's links on the blog for that. Right. And virtual listeners, you know that we always check in on the blog to see about updating on the bus stop billboard. So keep an eye on that for upcoming events. So that's it. I believe that's it for us. Hmm? Uh-huh. Yes, that's it. And folks, remember to... Listen to your mother. Yeah. Happy solstice, solstice, everyone. This is Glenn Ayers. And this Dio saying adios. I am Mother Earth, and I approve of this message. <laughs>